Well, this morning we are going to be in Proverbs chapter 25 to start with. But we're also going to be looking at some other passages. We're going to be doing a lot of hopping around today. Because uh, Proverbs 25 includes some Proverbs that Jesus used and spoke to. And so we're going to look at the, the original and what Solomon was saying, but we're also going to look and see how did Jesus repeat it, use it, or maybe even expand on it. And so we got some, some hopping around to do today, and we are looking at, uh, first off though, we got to remind ourselves, these Proverbs came in the writing at least, and in the action, Jesus is before all things, but Jesus coming down to, to earth, born of the Virgin Mary, going to the cross, is after these Proverbs were written. Now, he's, he's before them, but he is also after them in the sense of his earthly ministry. These Proverbs begin, and chapter 25 begins, a, a new book in essence. The uh, 25 through 29, these chapters, we're told in verse 1 of chapter 25 that these also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. So in the, in the time of Hezekiah, there were some men that served him that had collected these sayings of Solomon, and maybe they'd been out and about in public for a long time, and it was decided that these needed to be uh, codified and put together and assembled in some sort of order, and it ended up being added to the book of Proverbs as we know it. And so these are Proverbs of Solomon. He has proclaimed them, but they were later additions, if you will, into the greater book, and they are focused by... Uh, the men of Hezekiah. So it wasn't like Solomon organized these. Some other people organized them. But they're, they're proverbs that go along together and kind of create an idea. But what we are looking at from these is because we are New Testament believers and we read Scripture through the lens of Jesus Christ, we're going to read them, but then we're going to say, okay, what did Jesus do with these? How does Jesus want us to respond to these as well. So we are seeking to live and to respond to these Proverbs just like Jesus. We're going to begin in verse 6 that tells us, Do not claim honor in the presence of the king, and do not stand in the place of great men. It's literally, do not stand in the standing spot of great men. Like, don't stand where the great men are supposed to be. Don't, don't claim honor... Don't assume things for yourself in the presence or in, before the face of the king. Don't stand in the, in the spots that are reserved for the great men. He says in verse 7, For it is better that it be said to you, Come up here, than for you to be placed lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. You know, you, you, you're, you're in there, you've been there, and you've elevated yourself. And then he tells you, Get down from there. Move. It is better instead that you would not stand there and, and have somebody recognize you and say, hey, he's, he's sitting in a low spot. Bring him up. And that's exactly how Jesus uses this uh, in the New Testament. And, and we're going to flip to Luke chapter 14 uh, to see exactly what Jesus says of this uh, passage. In Luke chapter 14, verse 7, we're told that Jesus began speaking a parable 
to the invited guests. He had, he had come to a, a dinner, and, and he s- began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. So the, the same idea that Solomon had. Don't, Solomon was, when you're in the, in the presence of the king, don't assume a place of honor. Here, he's noticing people, and they're at this dinner, this, that banquet or a wedding, and they're, they're, they're at a dinner, and they're, they're choosing their spots. They're sizing one another up, because I don't know that we have this exactly, although I guess at our weddings, you have table number one where the the bride and the groom sit, and there are certain people that will sit at the table with them, and, and then there might be some close tables. Most of the, the weddings I go to, there is not assigned seating. It's, it's we found this table over here, that's where we're going to sit. But when you're at a fancy place, if you ever get invited by fancy people to a fancy meal, where they actually have assigned tables, you know, or at least, and, and the idea here would be that your, your, your name isn't there, but the, their levels, you know, family and friends, really important people. And, and, and what would happen is that the, the Jewish people, they, they would rank themselves. It's very similar to what would happen at the, in the Middle Ages, where you would have the high table and the lower tables. And the idea was that you would position yourself closer to the king or the Lord based on your status. If you were a wealthier person but not a noble person, you would be on a lower table but closer. But if you were not so wealthy or didn't have such a noble status, you would be further and further and further to the end of the table in the room. And so that's the idea, that they would, they would figure out, where do I belong? And, and everybody kind of had an idea of, where do I belong in this group? And most of us have that kind of a feeling when we're in a group. We know, are we a leader in this group? Are we one of the the lower people? And so that's what they would do. And this is what Jesus is saying. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. You know, don't, don't think too highly of yourself and put yourself in the position of honor. Because what happens if somebody else comes who's more deserving than you are? Well, he tells us in the, in the next verse, He who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this man. You'd basically be kicked out of the seat you've claimed because that person deserves it. They're more worthy of that spot. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. It's, it, it, it's this idea. It's, it's saying if there were ten chairs, and, and you know, you're probably a number four, Right? But you go and you sit in the number ten or the number six chair. You, you you take a position of greater honor. But then the guy who really belongs in the number six chair shows up. Well, somebody else is already in the four chair. Are you going to be able to push them out? Or maybe what you're going to have to do is go all the way down to the number one chair, the one at the very bottom, and sit there. That that's the idea that Jesus has. You're going to, you're going to have to occupy the last place because you placed yourself too far up and you got kicked out of it. And now everything else is filled. You're just going to have to sit at the bottom. He says, instead, when you are invited, but when you are invited, go and recline at the last place. Take the lowest seat possible. So that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. 
then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. Instead of the, the person who has been inviting you coming to you and saying, hey, uh, you, need to, you need to move. I've got somebody else that needs to sit in a seat. Instead, they're going to come in and they're going to see you at a low spot and they're going to be embarrassed that you're at the low spot. They're going to be ashamed for themselves that you're at the low spot when you don't deserve to be there and this is their party. And they're going to pull you out of that low spot and they're going to say, move up higher. And what happens when they move you up higher? Well, somebody else is getting kicked out of their seat, aren't they? It's switching you from the person that was honored the first time and you were dishonored by having to go down. Now you're the one who's being honored and maybe he only brings you up to that fourth seat. But that's a higher honor than the one the lowest seat. And that's what Jesus is saying. If we, if we will humble ourselves and sit in the last spot, we'll be exalted. And, and that's what he says in verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's, that's exactly what the proverb is telling us. Don't, don't take the place of, of honor, but humble yourself. But Jesus takes it even farther, or further than that. Excuse me. He takes it further. In verse 12, he also went on to say to the one who had invited him. So he's here at this meal, and he tells the guy who invited him. And this is kind of a, well, Jesus was bold. Let's just put it that way. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return. And that will be your repayment. Now, Jesus is at a meal that he has just been invited to. What do you think this person who invited him was doing? You know, he was probably honoring Jesus. He was probably elevating Jesus. He was, he was honoring and, and giving um, and, and inviting all the people that he would normally invite, most likely. And here Jesus is, his, his honored guest, saying, you know, you really shouldn't uh, invite people who... We'll, we'll be able to invite you back. And, and you shouldn't just invite wealthy people or well-to-do people or famous people like Jesus himself. I, I, instead, he says, but when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So, so Jesus takes it far further than just uh, when you're invited someplace, don't take a position of, of dignity. Don't take a place of uh, honor. But you know what? When you are throwing a party, when you're inviting people, don't just invite those that you can honor instead, or that will honor you for it and give back to you. Instead, Invite the lowest people. Invite the outcasts. Invite the lame. Invite the blind. Invite the, the people who can't repay you. Now, think about it. We are known by our associations, are we not? If you, if you run with the right crowd, people think a certain thing about you. This is what got Jesus in some trouble with the Pharisees. Friend of tax collectors and sinners. Like they, they didn't think much of him. He wasn't hanging out with the finest Pharisees. He wasn't dining with the, the synagogue rulers everywhere he went. They said he is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's eating and, and spending his time with the lowest people. And that's, that's exactly Jesus' point. 
You can honor yourself not just by choosing a higher seat or a place of respect, but we can honor ourselves by who we invite to things. I had the mayor show up to my... I mean, I don't think any of us are running in those circles, you know, but I'm sure there's something. I, I, I don't know that it's the same anymore, but there used to be like the society page in the newspaper where you got to read about the fancy people's dinners and parties. I've never understood how that was news. But then again, I'm not the one paying for the newspapers. But for those people, who shows up is an important thing. And that's what Jesus was dealing with. And instead, he's telling them, don't try to honor yourself by inviting certain people. Instead, what? Humble yourself. Humble yourself and invite the lame. Humble yourself and invite the blind. Humble yourself and invite the deaf people. Humble yourself and invite those who can't honor you, can't give you more cred, can't pay you back. And when we think about Jesus, this is exactly who he is and what he has done. Not considering himself, not, not considering equality with God something to be held on to, he emptied himself and took on the form of flesh, becoming obedient, even to death, and even to death on the cross. He is the creator of all things, and yet he became a servant. So, just like Jesus, the idea of the proverb and that Jesus expands on is that you should humble yourself in all things, just like Jesus does. Humble yourself in all things. Not just, uh, oh, I'm not going to take a position of of respect or of honor, but also when we invite people to things, when we ask people to join us, there can be a humbling essence to that if we are inviting people that we would consider be our present-day lame, deaf, blind people. Those that are poor that cannot repay us. There is a humbling aspect of inviting them into your home. And that's what he is encouraging us here, that we would not glorify ourselves, but that we would humble ourselves just as Jesus does. And to remember that that Jesus has humbled himself and he continues to humble himself by his association with us. That's what he has done. That's what he calls us to do. The second set of Proverbs out of Proverbs 25 we're going to look at is next verse, verse 8. He says, Do not go out hastily to argue your case. Otherwise, what will you do in the end when your neighbor humiliates you? Uh, go out hastily to argue your cases is, is the idea of making an argument. You know, we, they didn't exactly have courts the way we do. You would go to the, the gate of the city to, to argue, and you would get some elders of the city to listen to you. And he says, don't be so quick to go out and do that. Otherwise, what will you do in the end when your neighbor humiliates you? Argue your case instead in verse 9. Argue your case with your neighbor and do not reveal the secret of another. So the idea is that you would go and just argue your argument with your neighbor privately. Do not reveal the secret of another or he who hears it will reproach you and the evil report about you will not pass away. Now the way that is written sounds like what it's saying is that if you 
argue your case with your neighbor, and then you go out and you talk about what happened in private, those that hear about it will give you uh, an evil report, and everybody's going to hear about it. And it's a, it's a complicated uh, way of translating it. There, there's an alternate way of understanding it that, unfortunately, the NAS, the NIV, none of them really pick up on it. But let's, let's just try to, to look at it a little bit of a twist. I'm going to give you a different version. I didn't make all this up. I, I, I worked with some other influences here. But here's 8 through 10, an alternate way. Do not take a matter to court quickly. Don't, don't, don't be too rash, too quick to take it to court. Lest, uh, what will you do when you lose? Right? Make your case to your adversary, the person you're arguing against, and do not reveal it to another arbitrator. And that, that's a, a twist on the do not reveal the secret of another, because secret means counsel. And so it could be understood as don't take... Don't take uh, your, your argument to an alternative, uh, don't reveal your argument to an alternative counsel or an arbitrator. And, and, and because of what happens if you do that? Well, verse 10, let, lest the one who hears it finds against you and there be no end to your disgrace. So the idea isn't that it's two steps, but it's all one argument. Don't be so quick to argue your case, otherwise what will you do in the end if your neighbor humiliates you, if he, if he proves you wrong? Instead, take your argument to your neighbor and, and, and discuss it together. Don't take it to the arbitrators. Don't take it to the council and have them decide because what are you going to do if they hear it and they find against you and then there will be no end to your disgrace? Now, Jesus says a similar thing. Jesus says uh, this very same thing in Matthew. Chapter 5. In verse 25, Jesus tells us, and this is in the Sermon on the Mount, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. So, similar idea. You might lose. In fact, the assumption in Proverbs 25 and in Matthew chapter 5 is you're going to lose. Don't, uh, you know, in, in Proverbs it was don't be so quick to go to the court. Don't be so quick to argue it in public. And the idea is similar here in Matthew chapter 5. It's while you're on your way, make friends. Make friends quickly with your opponent while you're on the way, while you're headed to court. Don't wait till you're there. But before you get there, Make peace. Make friends. Because otherwise, your opponent may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. The last cent. A, a similar idea to there will be no end of your destruction. There will be no end of the fallout from this if, if you go to court. So in, in both the Old, the Old Testament proverb and in the New Testament Sermon on the Mount, the instruction to us is to not be so hasty and not so willing to go to court to argue with people in public. We should instead try to become fr make friends with them, to come to peace with them before we get there. Because the assumption is, is you're at fault. You're wrong. Now, we don't always feel that way, do we? 
We don't always feel like we're wrong. In fact, most of the time we feel like we're in the right. Don't we? You have a disagreement. It, it could be business. It could be civil litigation, a, a disagreement between neighbors. It could be divorce. These are all things that we go to court for. These are all breakings between people. And I have yet to meet the person who has said, oh yeah, I was completely at fault. For instance, in a divorce. In fact, it's rare to find somebody that can admit partial fault. It's generally, oh, that other person, nice former spouse, they did this, they did that. The assumption in Scripture, though, is that we're at fault. That if we take it to court, we're going to lose. Now, we have usually the attitude of we're righteous. We have the righteous argument, we're serving God. How can we lose? But the assumption in, in Scripture is you're at fault. And Jesus takes it even beyond that. Not just in the courts, but right before this, in verse 23 and 24. Or, yeah. He's talking about, prior to, in, in 22, he's talking about being angry with your brother. But in 23, he says, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar. So you're, you're at the temple. You have brought your offering and you're presenting it at the altar. And there, while you're at the temple, at the altar, with your offering in hand, ready to present it to the priest, that they would offer it on your behalf to God for salvation, for worship, whatever it might be, for forgiveness of sins. He doesn't make it clear there. It's just your offering is at the altar. And there remember that your brother has something against you. Not that you have something that you're not forgiving your brother for. Forgive us as we have forgiven others those who sin against us. He's not talking about that. No, you're there and you remember that your brother has something against you. Your brother isn't forgiving you because of something. And he doesn't say you've done something wrong. He just says your brother has something against you. Sometimes people in our lives have something against us even though we haven't done anything to them or we haven't maliciously tried to do anything against them. It could just be a disagreement or a misunderstanding. But that moment, you're at the altar, you're worshiping God, you're ready to give your offerings to Him, and you recognize, oh yeah, my brother has something against me. He says, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come and present your offering. So again, the, the, the assumption is that we need to be reconciled to our brother who has something against us. I haven't necessarily done anything wrong. I'm not holding a grudge. I'm not, you know, nursing this desire for revenge. It's my brother that's doing all those wrong things. And yet, before you offer your sacrifice, before you offer your offering to the Lord, leave it. Leave it there. I'm coming back, priest. I've just got to go and take care of something first. Now, whether Jesus literally expected people to do that. I mean, your brother could be up in Galilee and you're down in Jerusalem. The principle is definite that we are supposed to be living out. That before our worship to God, before offering to Him, we need to be reconciled with our brother. And that even if we can say, oh, I wasn't at fault, no, we need to act like we are. Because how can you be reconciled to somebody who holds something against you? other than maybe to, to, to ask for forgiveness and apologize for whatever it is they are holding against you. 
Maybe you have done something wrong. Maybe you don't recognize it. Maybe you need to ask for forgiveness. But it could be completely in them. Jesus doesn't say anything about the brother. It's about us. How are we supposed to react to the person who holds something against us? How are we supposed to act if we have to go to court? You might not be the one who is suing somebody. They might be suing you. But he says make friends with them quickly before you get to court. Don't let it go that far. That's, that's tough in this life. What he's, what he's telling us is that we, you know, just as we saw in the first point, that we need to humble ourselves in all things. This is something where you have to humble yourself. When, when somebody wants to sue you, to try to become friends with them is a humbling experience. When somebody has something against you and you don't think you've done anything wrong, oh, isn't it humbling? To go to them and act as if you've done something wrong? To ask for their forgiveness even when in your heart you say, I haven't done anything wrong. It is humbling to go and to say, would you forgive me? I am sorry I have done this. Even if what you've done was something they just dreamed about, but you did it because you did it in their dreams. It's humbling. And yet that's what God calls us to do. Jesus calls us to humble ourselves in all things and even in this. And, and our focus is often more on justice. We want justice, don't we? We want justice in the courts. And Scripture talks about, may there be justice in the courts. We want justice in the courts. We want justice for what is going on. You think about uh, the stuff that is going on in, in Israel right now. I don't know about you. I want some justice. I want to see some justice. I've got enough violence in my heart to want to produce justice. But more than justice, we should seek reconciliation. More than justice. That's a toughie. But yet, what has Jesus done? God could have brought justice a long time ago, and he, he has, and He will. But more than justice, what does God seek? Reconciliation. If it was just justice, he could have hung us all on crosses and he would have been right to do so. But because God seeks reconciliation, he brought Jesus Christ to the earth for us and he went to a cross in our place so that God might reconcile us to him. And, and he has forgotten all our sins against him. He has forgotten every past sin, every present sin. He will forgive every future sin against Him because Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. More than justice, God has sought reconciliation. Because honestly, there is very little true justice in Jesus going to the cross. It was an injustice. He was innocent, but He died the death of a criminal. It is not just. It was never just. It was never uh, equal even when the Israelites were sacrificing lambs. I mean, think of it. The lamb had to be young. It had to be spotless. It had to be pure so that they could kill it for themselves to cover their sins. That's not justice. There's more justice than eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You've hurt me this much. You should be hurt the equal amount. That, there's some justice there. But no, what we have is, is a miscarriage of justice 
because the guilty have gone free and have been declared innocent because the innocent died on their behalf. And that is what we have received. And if we have received that, if we have received Jesus Christ's death on the cross, if we have received His death for our sins, how can we refuse to seek to reconcile those who have sinned against us. This is why our ability to forgive others and our willingness to forgive others and our actual forgiving of others is so tightly tied to God's forgiveness of us. And Jesus says several times, if we are unwilling to forgive those who have sinned against us, God will not forgive us. Because He has forgiven us Everything. So we have to humble ourselves and seek reconciliation if we are to be like Christ, to be like Jesus. We're going to skip ahead a few verses in chapter 25. We're going to skip over a few. Proverbs 25, verse 21 tells us, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Yahweh will reward you for this. And, and that's all the proverb says. Just you know, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Have you heard that before? Paul recited it almost perfectly in Romans chapter 12. Paul tells us that if possible, so far as it depends on you, to be at peace with all men. As far as it depends on us, and that's a clear, that's a necessary thing. If you have a neighbor who will not live at peace with you, it's hard to be at peace with them, isn't it? I would say for the nation of Israel, if you have neighbors that constantly want to see your destruction, it is hard to live at peace with them. And if the only way to have peace is that you all are obliterated and destroyed... Well, that is an unacceptable, and that's not what Scripture is teaching us. That is not what Jesus is calling us to when we talk about humbling ourselves and seeking reconciliation. Yes, seek reconciliation. That should be. But as much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. But then Paul's, or, yeah, Paul says in verse 19, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then in verse 20, Paul brings it in. He says, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. So Paul was familiar with Proverbs chapter 25. And then Paul says in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul is applying this proverb to the lives of the Christians in Rome. People who are under persecution. The Jews have been kicked out of Rome. Sometime after this, a great persecution of the Christians will be taking place. Well, they will be taken into the circus and slaughtered. Nero will use them as lamps in his garden. Crucifying them and lighting them fire so that they might light up the night sky for his pleasure. And to the people who are about to face that, he says, live at peace as po- if, if at all possible. 
Don't take your own revenge. Remember that vengeance is the Lord's. Instead, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Thirsty, give him a drink. In so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Now, he might not acknowledge it. He might not be kind to you. He might actually react in even greater anger and venom and wickedness to you because of those burning coals. Think about it. If you heap burning coals on somebody's head, how are they going to react to you? If a person is is your enemy and they are hurting you, what they want you to do is react in kind, which justifies their behavior. But if we react to our enemies by loving them, by being kind to them, by giving them water if they're thirsty or food if they're hungry, that just makes them angrier. That will feed them and, and possibly cause them to do even greater things to you. Paul doesn't proclaim this is the way to get peace. He doesn't proclaim this is the way to get it to easy street. It's got nothing to do with that. It has to do with reacting the way God would have us react. And he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is why we do not pray for the destruction of the Palestinian people but for their redemption, for their restoration, for reconciliation. Because we must try to overcome evil with good. Jesus says similar things. In Matthew uh, chapter 5, going back there again, in verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In today's world, we could say, don't even the, the, you know, don't the Chinese, aren't they at least nice to their friends? They might not be nice to their countrymen, but at least they're nice to their friends, right? Don't at least the Palestinians uh, greet their brothers? Aren't they at least kind to those that they love? We're not doing anything more than even the wickedest people if we are doing those things. And that's why he calls us to love our enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. And he closes it in verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's not the this is the way to make them happy with you. It is this is the way to be like God. Because this is what God has done in the world. He is the one who gives the sunshine to everybody. He gives rain to both the righteous and the wicked. It's not just righteous people that benefit in this world. A lot of wicked people benefit in this world. A lot of wicked people have blessings from God in this world. He doesn't just bless the righteous. I think sometimes He blesses the wicked a little bit more. He'll let them get away with things that He won't let a righteous person get away with. You sit there and you think, how does that person cheat at business and get ahead? Well, they're they're wicked. But let a righteous person try just to cheat a little bit. 
I think God's going to shut that down. Why? Because that person represents him. That wicked person doesn't represent him. That wicked person, that might be the only blessing they're ever going to have in eternity, and he'll let them have it. But he's got greater desires for the righteous, that we would not just have material blessing or blessing in this world, but that we would have the blessing of being like God. That we would have the blessing of being like Jesus. And what God has done is he has loved the wicked. What God has done is he has loved his enemies. And he has sacrificed himself for his enemies. And this is what he is calling us to do as well. So when, when the proverb says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat, that was an idea. That wasn't an idea that Jesus came up with in the New Testament. That was an idea that was communicated in the Old Testament. That is an Old Testament idea. There was an understanding of grace and of mercy and of loving your enemies even in the Old Testament. But Jesus takes us further in it to realize that by doing this, we become more and more like God. That we can be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. That we will, if we do these things, you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And if we look at His life, we see that this is what Jesus did. Jesus shows, the, shows us the way to love our enemies because He loved His enemies. He died on the cross for His enemies. He sent His Holy Spirit to convict us as enemies that we are against Him and that we need forgiveness so that we might become His friends, that we might become His brothers and sisters, that we might become children of God. And He calls us to live like He has lived. To love our enemies. And we have enemies. America has enemies. Christians have enemies. You may have enemies in your neighborhood. You may have enemies on your street or at work or in, the, in your community. You might have people that just don't like you. They don't like the way you talk. They don't like the way you dress. They don't like the way you do something. Who knows? You might not have done anything. But you have enemies. Jesus calls us to humble ourselves just like He did. To seek reconciliation just like He did. And to love our enemies just like He did. He doesn't tell us it's going to make life easy. It doesn't mean that they're going to get along with us and be nice to us and be happy with us. They, they might even get worse because of it. We see that every day. People who because they have rejected Jesus, there is almost hatred and anger against us because you believe and you call them to Him. They could just leave Him be, but no, they've got to try to fight Him even though they've rejected Him. Our enemies might get worse if we feed them when they're hungry. They might hate us even more if you give them something to drink when they're thirsty. But that's what... God has done for us. That's what He calls us to do for them, to love our enemies. Because that is what He has done. So I want to invite you today and encourage you as we look at the news, as we deal with people in our lives. Do you love your enemies? Do you show your enemies love? That's a hard call. 
That's a hard standard to live up to. But it's what we have to do if we're going to be like Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called us to be your children, that you have sent us our Savior who died on the cross for our sins. We were your enemies. Sometimes, Lord, we still act like your enemies even though we are your children. We disobey you. We react in our sin and not in righteousness. Sometimes we, we seem to be working against you as your church. But you love us. You forgive us. And you give us life. Lord, we pray today that we would be like Jesus. That we would seek your wisdom and how to live. That we would not seek to honor ourselves, but that we would humble ourselves. Lord, that we would not strive to have justice, but to take it a step further and have reconciliation. Lord, that we would not say eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Or really what the American desire is, is they brought a knife, I'm going to bring a gun. But instead, Lord, that we would bring love for our enemies. That we would bring food and drink for the hungry and thirsty, filled up on hate and nothing good. Lord, teach us to love them. Show us how to love them. Help us to love them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.